Well, good morning. We're in a series entitled Pain, Presence, Comfort, and Joy. Uh, this is Todd Windorf. I preached this message uh, a couple weeks ago. Unfortunately, it wasn't recorded. Several people asked if I would re-record this message. Uh, I haven't done this before, but I'm going to go ahead and give it a shot. And uh, so I pulled out my old notes, and um, I'm going to give you that message that was delivered several weeks ago. Uh, so here we are in a series entitled Pain, Presence, Comfort, and Joy. We began with this idea that uh, pain is what we feel when God takes us through something traumatic in our lives to get our attention. He brings his presence into our lives uh, to bring the greatest level of comfort, which results in joy. And this morning we're looking at comfort from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God in Isaiah 40, chapter, chapter 40, verse 1. And here's my uh, belief, is that God breaks through in our lives even during our darkest hour. If you've ever seen the movie, The Darkest Hour, you might know what I'm talking about. Winston Churchill has been appointed the new prime minister during a wartime in Great Britain, 1940. England has lost all its hope. Most in Parliament want peace. And their entire army is stranded on the beaches of Dunkirk. And Churchill has within him a determination to fight till the end for honor, for future generations, for Great Britain, to rescue his army, his boys, as he calls them. It was England's darkest hour. He says, I promise you blood, toils, tears, and sweat in one of his early speeches to Parliament. And then, of course, we will fight on the beaches. And we realize in this movie, and we see this in real life, that uh, what Churchill does is he pushes forward, even though everything seems to be against him. He's relentless in his push forward. And so is God. God does his best work when there is no hope left. And uh, imagine your own darkest hour. And as I thought about this movie, I thought, well, how, how does that relate personally and spiritually? And I thought of three kind of darkest hours that people go through in life. And the first one is a time of decline spiritually. And it's funny, when I first preached this message, I said, you might be listening online because you have all but given up on church and Christians and reading the Bible and faith. And this is your last thread of hope, this sermon podcast that you listen to from the freedom of your car or from your home. And it's all you're holding, holding on to. You'll never trust another church or a group of Christians again, or or you, you just don't want to enter into the community of faith. You, you just want to listen from a distance. Funny thing is, is that now the only way to hear this message is online. So in no way is listening online a bad thing. It's actually a good thing, and it's a productive use of time. But maybe it's an indication of spiritual decline because you are getting your Christianity online rather than in person. And Jesus was a person and invited disciples into relationship with him. But maybe you're in a, another kind of darkest hour, a time of leisure and complacency. And God is a convenient appendage to your life. You've raised the kids and it's time to slide, to throttle back and enjoy life. Complacency has made your faith soft. Maybe it's led you to wandering from a life in Christ that is yours, but you are too busy or just coasting. 
Weekends are made for Michelob, as the motto says. And so you find yourself kind of complacent with Jesus, and it kind of fits into your schedule as opposed to being a priority in your schedule. But maybe you're in a third darkest hour, which is a deep time of trial. A difficulty is upon you like you've never had before. And you feel like you're drowning. And God wants your attention in this time. What I want to point out to you in Isaiah chapter 40 is that Israel experienced all three of these. Spiritual decline, leisure, and trials that hit them like a flash flood. But in Isaiah chapter 40, God storms their beaches and rescues their weary souls. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, which is an absolutely beautiful book, it's one of the most beautiful poetic, prophetic books in all the Bible, um, in the first 39 chapters, Israel is scorned for their spiritual decline, for their complacency, for settling in. As a result, they are entering into a significant time of trials. Their darkest hour is put upon them. They have pulled away from God. And for 39 chapters, God has called the Israelites into accountability for their failures and sins. Greed, racial injustice, oppression of the poor, impurity, marital infidelity, neglect of the family, they're all in there. Every single one of them. Nevertheless, in Isaiah chapter 40, God does not give up hope on his people. He never does, no matter what our past has been. Consequences for disobedience are coming. Israel will experience exile. But God holds out unmerited grace. God is just and merciful. Just as in, ju in Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, we see this justice. In chapters 40, all the way to the end of the book, 60, chapter 66, 40 to 66, we see God's mercy. So we see both just and mercy, justice and mercy in Isaiah. A particular commentator, a great theologian, uh, Dr. Oswald, in the New International Commentary series, points out, one must not overlook the understanding of salvation by all this. God breaks into the world. He provides the only hope for a fading, dying humanity. His word is one of comfort and restoration because of atonement and forgiveness. Um, Isaiah is about salvation, God's salvation, and it brings the greatest amount of comfort. And what's building here in these chapters, and even if you go and survey Isaiah and you begin in chapter 1 and begin reading about the vision and about hearing from heaven, the Lord has spoken and he is speaking to Israel, a sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evil doers, it says, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Then in chapter 40, I chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. And we're going to read that together. We're going to look at that. Isaiah 40 is the turning point of the great work. In chapters 40 to 66, Israel's comfort. God is poised to deliver Israel, bringing restoration and comfort and new strength. He will not give up on you. And here's my big idea of the sermon. Here it is. God will use whatever means to call his people back to him. His greatest rescue effort is his comfort. Comfort is the work of God to bring us back to him, and God will use whatever means to make that happen. Let me say it again. God will use whatever means to call his people back to him, because that's what how much he loves you. 
His greatest rescue effort is his comfort. Do you need comfort today? Do you need restoration? Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm going to just read the first 11 verses and then the end of Isaiah 40 and skip the middle part, and I'll just tell you what that middle part's about. So it begins, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Notice the difference between Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 40. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I will. What shall I cry out? All men are like grass. All their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls, because of the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, and the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on the mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him, and his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have gone young, who have those who have young. And then in chapter 40, verse 12, all the way up to verse 27, it describes the greatness of this one who's coming. This king, this mighty warrior, and the shepherd, God, whom a way in the wilderness has been prepared. A highway for the Lord has been prepared. The greatness of God is described in these these next verses of who God is. The one who has measured the waters and hollow of his hand. With the breath of his hand, he's marked out the heavens. No one like God. And then, at the end, in verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stubble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. In this passage, Isaiah the prophet is speaking to Israel. He was the one chosen to deliver this message. Isaiah probably born into an influential upper-class family, shared the privileges of royalty and became kind of an attache for Israel. Isaiah was perfect for the job. Isaiah would attack the social ills of the nation, not as a reformer, but as one calling the people back to God. Spiritual Klein had left that nation vulnerable. And so it is with us as well. Privilege, complacency, a life of leisure, Even times of difficulty often lead to spiritual idolatry, and we need an Isaiah in our lives to call us back. And in this short short section of Scripture, we learn three things. We learn that comfort is knowing and receiving God's grace. It's the first two verses. And then we learn comfort is trusting that God will set all things right. 
And then finally, waiting is the response of the comforted. So we want to first begin with defining comfort, and then I want to look at these three ideas with you this morning. The first is, let's talk about comfort. Comfort is uh, often defined as relief from strife. It's, it's ease. It's alleviating grief. That's what comfort is. But notice the way Isaiah describes it in chapter 40. Comfort is far more than that. It's knowing and receiving God's grace. It's trusting that God will set things right. And it's putting ourselves in a position of receiving that comfort by waiting. So let's look at them. The first one is comfort know, is knowing and receiving God's grace. God's greatest act of comfort is thoughtfully, tirelessly, lovingly calling us back to him. It's through forgiveness. Notice what it says here in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly. Proclaim to her her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God is God's greatest act of comfort is thoughtfully, tirelessly, lovingly calling us back to him through forgiveness. You might be out there and you might be thinking, well, I don't need God's forgiveness. It's not where I'm at. Maybe either because you have completely just shut that off in your life or maybe you're just angry at God. Oh, how we need God's comfort. And God's comfort comes through the avenue of grace. Notice how God does this. Her iniquity has been removed. Removed Double for all her sins, the New American Standard says. I love that. Double forgiveness. Double payment. God is so overwhelmingly loving towards us that he gives double forgiveness. It's a double payment. Isaiah chapter 30, if you, go, if you look back just a few chapters and you look at Isaiah 30 verse 15, I read this. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest in your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have not none of them. You said, No, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, We will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. In this short section here, it ends with this in verse 17, A thousand will flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five, you will flee till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Do you see that in verse 18? The, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all of you who wait for him. It's like a mini Isaiah chapter 40 there in chapter 30. God is a God of comfort. And he brings that comfort as Brennan Manning said in a, in a book entitled Lion and Lamb, he uses the French phrase, the love of God is folly. L'amour de Dieu est folle. The love of God is folly. It's foolishness. God's love is so foolish. And then Brennan Manning in this book says these words, in the past 15 years of my ministry, I've identified one thing as my priority, healing our image of God dispelling myths and illusions about God. From knowing about God to experiencing God and his unconditional love, God's love for us is so great that he does not permit us to harbor false images, no matter how attached we are to them. I mean, that's the story of Isaiah. They held on to false images, idols. They worshiped idols rather than God. 
things that they had created that became more valuable to them than God. And Manning says, God strips those falsehoods from us no matter how naked it may make us. Tenderness is what happens to you when you know you are deeply liked by someone. Dr. Martin Lloyd, a great preacher, said, Do you think that you deserve forgiveness? If you do, you're not a Christian. Think about that. We need forgiveness. We desperately need it, all of us. It's what makes us Christians. It identifies us as followers of Jesus, how much we don't deserve it. Then he says this, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. How amazed are you at the fact that God has poured into your life a double forgiveness? The doubleness of forgiveness. It's a two-tap. It's, it's like in wrestling when they tap out. It's, it's the idea of tapping out when you, you've been, you've been, you've been uh, overwhelmed uh, with the power and the strength and skill of another competitor. And it's, it's an act of submission. It's a, it's a movement of surrender when you tap out. You give way for his comfort when you tap out. You stop fighting with God. You stop it. You just say, I'm done. I'm done fighting your ways. I'm done fighting you, God, in my life. Uh, and what happens when you do that is you're resetting your life. You are resetting your life. I was thinking about this the other week, and you know my computer gets often bogged down because it, it, you know, I just, I've got multiple programs open, and I want to read this article, and so I leave it up for weeks at a time, and then I open up another article, and got my email and my Word document, and I've got my Logos, my research application open with my commentary. I've got all these things open, and all of a sudden, everything freezes on me. And oftentimes, I lose my place where I am, and I've got to start over again. But oftentimes, when I reset, it's all clean. I clean out the cache, close down the programs, and it now starts working more smoothly. And God loves you and is committed to you and he wants to bring comfort through forgiveness in the darkest hour of your life. And it's so profound. It's like a reset in your life. You are off course. You are thinking of God in the wrong way. And you need this. You need this. The last four months of my own life is not just about some physical problem that I endured, that I encountered in my body that needed correction. But this is really important. It was far more than physical for me. And I now see that clearly, that the last four months was not some throwaway or something to push through and say, well, okay, we got that fixed. I had surgery, now I'm back, and uh, it's all corrected. But it was a resetting of the way I approach God, what I thought of him, how I serve him, how I understand how he feels about me, what he wants from me from that's, that's more important that's more valuable than anything else in my life as i thought about this i wrote three things in my journal the last four months of three messages that god has given me upwards unhurried life and abiding in christ and those became very important ideas that i am going to focus on in the next season of my life as a result of resetting the idea of upwards that colossians 3 1 one to two, it talks about don't set your minds on the things below, but on the things above where Christ is seated in the heavenlies. Think about those things. It's an upwards look into the heavenlies that God wants me to do on a daily basis. Just to look up and to see him and to be reconnected with new perspectives. The unhurried life. Oh man, the unhurried life 
of Isaiah 40 in verse 31, that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Those that in the New American Standard, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. There's an unhurried life that God wants me uh, to understand and to begin to uh, build into my very scattered and hurried life. To unhurry things to, is to wait. And then finally to abide. I heard this over and over. God's message of abiding, John 15, you abide in him. Uh, and if you abide in him, you bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I, I just, John 15, 5, I hear that over and over again. And the Lord gave me that message. And so our greatest need is to be given a fresh start with God. And my question for you would be, is God is resetting your life? Is he resetting your life? Are you ready to receive that? The second thing I find here is that comfort is trusting that God will set all things right. Notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 40. It says, the voice cries out, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Dr. Oswald, in his commentary, points out that in antiquity, a road is built for a triumphal tour of a conquering king. So this is language that uh, the people of Israel would understand, that a king was coming and he would come and conquer a land and they would build a highway for him. And in ancient Babylon, uh, there's a hymn, an ancient Babylonian hymn that says, A God on a march, hasten to go out, son of Bel. You know that the ways and the customs make his way good, renew his road, make his path straight, cue him out a trail. So this was understood in antiquity that someone powerful was coming, you make the way. But what is depicted here is the irresistible triumphal march of the universe's king. This is not some normal king. This is not people building a road for him. Nothing in the world can deter him. Not deserts, not mountains, not valleys. He is an unstoppable reality, as Dr. Oswald says. An unstoppable reality. He is coming, and he is coming to bring comfort. But you must trust that he's coming. And in this comfort, he's setting things right. And, and notice in this text, they can't build the highway. God is building the highway. Two things I see in this passage, in this particular section, is that, number one, absolute authority and healing comes from the hand of God our King. God has the authority. The chasms, notice, the chasms are being filled in that make the road. God is like no other emperor. He doesn't need a road made. He will bring down the mountains. He will fill in the desert valleys. Imagine these deep chasms, these valleys, and these high mountains, there's, how does a highway get built? No bridge over the chasm is needed. It's a point, it points out his authority and his power. Just the, the, the mountains tumble. But I want you to see something else, and I think this is really critical. Um, and that is the chasm is being filled. That is the valley is being filled. And the valley represents maybe possibly a low point. Maybe the symbolic for the fact that the whole earth is like a desert and healing is needed. God is the king who fills in the valleys of suffering and hurt and pain. And what he does is he brings down the mountain to fill it all in. He comes to make things right. He is restoring. He's renewing. The deepest hopes of the human race are laid desolate. And there is pain and violence and injustice. It's all around us. Yet the mountains will fill the valleys in your life. God is coming into your life to make things right, to fill them in. 
That's the highway of the Lord into your life. The whole world will see this. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. Notice it says, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. It's, it's a powerful movement of God. It will be seen from a vantage point from outside. You see God tearing down the mountains and filling the valleys. But notice the contrast here with the powerful presence of God and his authority and his ability to bring healing is this idea that the grass in verse 7 withers and the flower falls because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. Notice the contrast to an irresistible, conquering, powerful king. We see humanity as grass, powerless, insignificant. Humanity can neither save itself nor hinder he, the one who determines to save. Grass is the inconsequentiality and mortality of life. Um, there's a, I remember being in Israel and uh, standing in Jerusalem and watching this, what's called a kumsin, a kumsin, which is a hot, dry, sand-filled wind from the east that blows across the desert and through the cities. And I was in Jerusalem and I remember seeing this yellow cloud of dust headed right towards us as we ran for cover. And what's described, uh, how this particular come scene is described is, is that it can blow literally across a countryside and turn it from green to brown in 48 hours. Just wipe it out. And uh, this is probably a picture of the breath of the Lord, the Hruah, the Spirit of God, which blows in, calls for a halt to our human pretensions. And maybe the grass is symbolic for our human pretensions, our desire to make something great in ourselves. And he turns your life from green to brown and then breathes this new life into you. This is comfort. This is comfort. You might think that it's discipline and it's not. It's comfort. How is God doing that? Before you can receive restoration from the Lord, you must be emptied of your pretensions, your false views of him. I mean, look at verse 9 and 10 and notice how much God wants to do this in your life. He comes, it says, with a strong arm as a warrior. God is a mighty warrior. And then notice it also says he is the shepherd um, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads them, those that have young, as, you know, as a shepherd. So God is both depicted as a mighty warrior and as a gentle shepherd. The arm raised up in triumph is lowered in compassion, Dr. Mullenberg says. His reward is with him. And what is his reward? He has all the treasures of heaven. He has all the treasures of earth. What possibly more would God need? What is God's reward? It says that he is bringing with him his reward there in verse 10. His reward is with him. And I want to suggest that we are his reward. We are his most valuable, valued treasure. The warrior becomes a shepherd who cares for his most treasured, us. We're not just pardoned, but we are welcomed into the arms of God. From double forgiveness to acceptance. Reminds me of C.S. Lewis's short chapter on weight of glory. And typically we think of glory as being God's glory, but, but the way Lewis describes weight of glory is it's, it's being noticed by God. It's really God's glory that shines back on us that Lewis is referring to. What does it look like when God's glory shines back on us 
And he says two things, one, fame and splendor. First, glorious fame. It's a good report with God. It's acceptance by God. God's glory being shown back on us is demonstrating that God accepts us. And Lewis says, the door upon which we have been knocking all of our lives will open at last. The glory of God is shining back on us, accepting us. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, it's like what the Apostle Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. He is known. God knows us. He accepts us. Lewis goes on to say that in the weight of glory, it's not just fame, it's splendor. We want more than just to see beauty, God's beauty, but to be united with, to be invited into the beauty of God, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe into it, to become part of it. One day we will be all in all. The weight of glory is the deep longing to be accepted and loved by God, which is only possible by the work of Christ. To be accepted into the splendor of God. Now that's comfort. That's the kind of comfort God is bringing. Lewis ends and he says this, to be found approved by God, for God to be delighted in us, is a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain us. But so it is. So it is. We do. We do. We understand his glory because of this. He, we are his reward. In this total acceptance and love, we now desire pure devotion to him. We don't obey God because we have to, but because we are treasured by him. And so we move into our final uh, and third point, which is waiting is the response of the comforter. Notice in verse 28 all the way to 31. Don't you know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, will not grow weary and tired. His understanding is unfathomable, but he gives strength to the weary. He increases power to the weak. He talks about the youth that grow weary and the young men that stumble and fall, but those who hope or wait in the Lord will renew their strength. Our response is to wait. Our response is to wait. It's the posture of waiting that invites God's strength into your life. And you have to be in a... During my time of recovery from surgery, I read several books, and one of them was Alan Fadling's book, The Unhurried Life. I read it probably three times. He says that God does more through the life of the one who has found a new pace, a new rhythm. He quotes Kasuke Koyoma. And Dr. Koyoma is a Japanese theologian. And in it, he describes God as a three-mile-an-hour God. And if you really want to walk with God, you've got to walk his pace, which is three miles an hour. And God is up to something, and it's very slow. And his love, he says, God walks slowly because he is love. Uh, his love comes to us in a very slow but deliberate way. But you must wait for it. And then at Fadling says, to hurry God is to delay the things of God. We can run ahead of God and we totally miss the things of God. And one of the things God wants to do is renew your strength. So you must learn to wait. The, the Hebrew word is kavah. It's not killing time. Waiting is not killing time. You sit and wait for an appointment to have your hair cut or to enter into the doctor's office. You're not, it's not that kind of waiting, but it's a life of confident expectation. Understand the Hebrew concept of wait, the life of a confident expectation. Are you expecting God to do something new? So here's my challenge. Give up your frantic effort to save yourself and turn expectantly to God who will be able to replace and exchange your worn out strength for new strength. 
Dr. Oswald said. Give up the frantic pace. Expectantly wait for God to replace and exchange your worn out strength for new strength. And I wrote four things, and here they are. Here are the four things that you can do to be in a waiting posture to to receive the strength of God. Wait is trusting. It's beginning to trust Him, and it requires obedience. It's His way, not my way. And when you begin to live that out in your life, and you take an area of your life, and you trust Him by obeying Him, and you know what you want to do, and you know what you, how you want to approach this situation in your life, a decision, a relationship, an attitude, maybe it's a reaction or a response, but you're going to trust God and you're going to be obedient. That's waiting on the Lord. He renews strength when you are obedient to Him. His way, not your way. The second thing is waiting is settling down. It's putting your weight on Him, the one who can support you. So you literally fall on Him. You're, you're settling down. You're, 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 it's, it's, a, it's at the posture of rec- recognizing he is stronger than you. And I'm going to give up the battle. The third is waiting is expecting something new. I know something new is coming when I wait. I know it. And when I'm in a posture of waiting, and I'm waiting on a one who is the everlasting God, the creator, the one who does not grow weary and tired, whose understanding is unfathomable, I know that he gives strength to the weary. It's a new strength. He's going to do something new in my life. It's going to be a renewed perspective, a new, a renewed uh, 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 attitude. It's going to be uh, a whole new approach to people and relationships. And the fourth thing I wrote down is waiting is a new pace of walking. And so I slow down, and I'm slowing down slow enough to kind of just shove out all the interior noise in my life just kind of shut all that interior noise and all the conversation and I'm walking a new pace with God I am literally watching him do his best work when I am quiet before him it's the unhurried life I like John Ortberg he's not only a friend but just a great writer and a great preacher great pastor John I was listening to a podcast as I, after I've read this book, I'm like, okay, what is the unhurried life? What does it look like? And John just nails it. He says, the unhurried life is the, it's really the slowing down of the frantic, busy, troubled internal life. <laughs> I love that. You are battling demons in the interior and it's shutting that all down. That's what the unhurried life is. That's waiting. It's that troubled internal life gets, gets buried. And the result is, look at the result. Here it is. We come now to the final conclusion of this message. And it says, But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You see that? In the New American Standard, it says this. uh, In Isaiah chapter 40, jumping all the way to the very end, it says, Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. The idea of mounting up there's, there's two ideas here. One is to put forth, the other is to spread wings. So either mounting up means literally to spread your wings and fly, or it means to put forth literally means to get new wings, to get new feathers, to get new feathers, to grow new feathers. It, it's, it comes from the idea that, that eagles grow new feathers every 10 years for 100 years. And every 10 years, 
they grow these new feathers. Um, whether it means spreading their wings to fly or in this, in this way that's effortless because God is now causing you to sail off into the wind, or it means literally you're dropping your old feathers and you're getting new feathers, and these new feathers are giving you flight. The picture is you are, you've mounted up in your sailing, and it's time for new feathers. God's comfort is waiting for you. Will you receive his forgiveness? Will you trust him? Filling in the chasms of your life with his presence as a king and a shepherd that has come for his reward, which is you. Will you actively wait for him? That's the question for you to answer this morning. Thank you. God bless you. Let me pray for you. So, Father, I want to pray for whoever is listening to this message that they would find the comfort of the Lord. I mean, seriously, really find your comfort. You, you've pronounced it in a way that's is just, it's so clear. It's the highway uh, in the wilderness. It's the toppling of the mountains. It's the filling of the chasms. It's, it's the forgiveness so that we might reset. It's waiting on you to get new strength. Your comfort is coming, and we want to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.